Good morning, everyone. This is Rick Whitlock. I'm one of the pastors here at Campus House. And, well, we find ourselves in some challenging circumstances and some confusing times, don't we? You know, this message was originally supposed to be delivered to about 70 people from the Campus House community who had traveled down to Gatlinburg, Tennessee for a spring break trip in the Smoky Mountains. We had planned to spend the whole week uh, hiking, eating, learning, praying together. We were going to focus on the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 that Jesus taught his disciples so that they could learn how to pray in his teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. And we had hoped to spend much of the week learning about prayer and actually praying together. However, as you know, and with the World Health Organization declaring the coronavirus, COVID-19, a pandemic, and with Purdue University canceling all international travels and discouraging all non-essential domestic travels, as well as canceling in-person classes for the foreseeable future, we at Campus House decided to cancel our spring break trip to Tennessee. And of course, that was really disappointing, as many of our staff and students love going on this annual, annual retreat to the mountains. But though it was disappointing, we didn't really find it to be a difficult decision in that we believe as Christians our top priority is to honor the name of the Lord and to love our neighbors. And it seemed apparent to us that to go against what many other organizations and the university policies are recommending wouldn't really be wise or loving. So we decided together the best course of action was to generally support Purdue's policies for health and safety, even as we also pray and plan to still be a faithful presence at a time when social distancing is the normative health and safety procedure. So we're grateful to God for creating the internet through the many men and women who've labored to bring us this high-speed connectivity while we, and yes, we join with many others in lamenting the distractedness and loneliness of the digital era But at a time like this, we are definitely overjoyed to be able to still minister God's word to and to keep in touch with God's people scattered as we now are. So to that end, I am preaching this sermon from my own home, socially distanced from everyone, (laughs) but thinking of all of your faces as I do. It's a strange experience to preach with no one in front of you. But I so strongly believe that the Word of God calls us to preach that I am eager to join with you in declaring God's Word, even if we can't see each other as we normally would. God's people have always hungered for God's Word, and especially when all else around us has been or become confusing or fearful or frustrating. So we really want to hear from our Father in Heaven. So let me pray for us this morning. Then we're going to open God's word so that he can orient us once again to what is most important, most vital for us. As we enter into this time in our world, in our country, where we are needing to take very great care with the health of our physical bodies and with our neighbors, let us also not neglect the health of our whole person as Jesus came to bring spiritual health and vitality to our heart, soul, mind, and body. So let's pray together, and then we'll open God's Word. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever. Lord, in a time like this, we ask that you would meet us where we are with your glorious presence. Reveal to our hearts what our eyes cannot yet see, Lord that you have a kingdom that is full of health, full of joy, full of peace, full of life, full of hope. As your people, we are longing for that kingdom to come in full while we also pray, Father, orient our hearts to living towards your kingdom here and now. Open our eyes to see how we can serve our neighbors and point to hope in Christ. Release us from our selfishness that can be concerned only with our own health or our own goals, and instead reveal to us your kingdom vision of loving and serving our neighbors, even our enemies, removing our fears, restoring our faith in you, so that we might live boldly, wisely, faithfully as your people. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, I encourage you, wherever you are, get out a Bible and return with me to the Sermon on the Mount, which was Jesus' first major teaching recorded in the chapters of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, 6, and 7. We've been looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount all of this spring semester, and it seems appropriate to continue in it, since at a time like this, it's just crucial to reorient our lives, our hopes on God himself, which is exactly what Jesus is teaching his people to do throughout the Sermon on the Mount. So today we're focusing on the opening line of the Lord's Prayer found in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, which tells us to address God as our Father in heaven. The Lord's Prayer is how Jesus teaches his followers to pray. And Jesus contends that if you don't know God as your Father, you don't know God at all. Well, let's read together this whole section of Jesus' teaching on prayer just to get the context, and then we'll talk particularly about praying to our Father in heaven. So let's read Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 15. And when you pray, Jesus said, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven." Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. 
Theologian J.I. Packer has said, true praying is an activity built on theology. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, and especially in Matthew 6, Jesus is making it very clear that, in the words of another theologian, Sinclair Ferguson, the single most important influence on the way we live the Christian life is how we think about God. Let me say that again. The single most important influence on the way we live the Christian life is how we think about God. For Jesus, then, theology how we think about God, determines our practice, that is, how we live our lives. In particular, Jesus stresses how important it is for us to think of God as Father, and to know the intimacy of a father-son, a parent-child relationship with Him. You can summarize the teaching of the whole New Testament really in a single thought— The New Testament is the revelation of God as Father, and it therefore reveals that the Christian religion is knowing God as your Father. As Packer says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child, of having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship, his prayers, his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught and everything that is distinctively Christian is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. That's it. If we get that wrong, if we get our thoughts about God wrong, then the whole course of our lives goes off track. Just like what we are working through right now as a society in light of the coronavirus, we have to work through the misinformation in order to know the truth both about the virus and the practices we can take to prevent its spread. For example, we just learned that the virus can remain in the air after someone coughs or sneezes for up to three hours, and it can even survive on many surfaces for up to three days. So having that in mind helps us think about our coughing and cleaning practices. It's why we cover our mouths, we wash our hands, we disinfect the surfaces of our homes. In a similar way, thinking wrongly about God, having theology not rooted in what he has revealed about himself will actually lead us to unhelpful practices in our lives. What does all that mean then? It it means that when we talk about prayer, We must never start with the practice of praying, as if it was just a technique, but with the person to whom we pray. We have to get our theology in order, otherwise our prayers will be out of order. Our practices will become simply performances or techniques. We will be praying, but we won't really be praying to God. And yet, one of the hallmarks of the Christian faith is God actually wants us to pray. He actually wants us to talk with Him. It may seem strange when you think, God already knows everything, right? Why should I pray to Him? Well, don't you actually spend more time talking closely and intimately to the people who already know you the best than the people who don't? It's the same idea. The point of all this so far is simply to say that we must begin with the fundamental reality that prayer is an activity of relationship. In particular, Jesus tells us that we have a father-son, a parent-child relationship with God. He is our father. This is our foundation. And it's how Jesus begins the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven. So we've got to seek to understand what God wants us to know about himself 
as father. And we're going to do that by exploring first, what does it mean that God is our father in heaven? And second, how does it affect our praying to know that God is our father in heaven? What does it mean? What does it mean that God is our father in heaven? The idea that God is our father is not absent in the Old Testament, but it is a little more rare. He is clearly the father of all humanity and creation. He describes the people that he saves, the nation of Israel, as his son. He says, Israel is my son. So there's this theme throughout the Old Testament that God is a father. But often it's more like an analogy. God is like a father. But something remarkable happens in the New Testament. When Jesus arrives on the scene, uh, he, he came to reveal that God is a father. And it becomes one of, if not the most dominant theme of the entire New Testament, and therefore a dominant theme of Christianity. The Gospels alone refer to God as Father over 170 times. That's just the first four books of the New Testament. And in the Gospel of Matthew, which we're looking at today, God is referred to as Father 44 times. And in just the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, God is referred to Father 17 times. And of those 17 references to God as Father in the Sermon on the Mount, Ten of them occur right in the very middle of the sermon, which is Matthew 6, verses 1 to 18. So at the center of the central teaching of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, is a concentration of father references, as if Jesus is seeking to accentuate the central role this understanding of God plays for his people. He really wants us to know that God is a father. Now, later in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 23, verse 9, Jesus says to his disciples, And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. He, he even goes on to redefine our biological relationships by calling us to even leave our families if need be, while providing a new family identity for us based on our relationship with God through Jesus. He's saying, then, that what you formerly counted on as your primary parental relationships are actually not. For the Christian, it is the fatherhood of God. God as our Father in heaven is more central to us than our earthly fathers on earth. So Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is all about living life with our Father in heaven, though we are on earth. And it's about shaping our life around the character of our Father in heaven so that our character as the people of God reflects His but we're on earth. So the first reality of the Christian is recognizing God is our Father in heaven, and we are his children on earth. Now, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, and really all throughout the Gospels, Jesus is typically making a distinction between himself and his disciples. So when he speaks about their relationship to the Father, he says, that's your Father. But when he speaks about his relationship with the Father, he says, my Father. And throughout the Gospels, he keeps this distinction clear. And he does that because what he's saying is he has a unique relationship with the Father that even when the disciples, they, they also now have God as their Father, it's still distinct. Except here in Matthew 6, verse 9, when Jesus begins his prayer, he says, Our Father. It's the only time that occurs. And the Apostle Paul picks up on that language later in the New Testament when he writes his letters to the churches. He constantly refers to God as our Father. But for now, the point is that Jesus himself 
rarely uses that kind of language. He says, your father and my father, and he makes distinctions between himself and the disciples. But he is pointing out a powerful new reality that stands not only at the center of the Sermon on the Mount, but the center of our lives as Christians. And that reality is that the father of Jesus is now also our father. The Lord's Prayer is not mainly meant to help us with private devotional times. Jesus teaches us to pray to our Father. So not only is our Father the same as Jesus' Father, but our Father is the same as every other believer's Father. Throughout the Lord's Prayer, it's not about just being an individual with Jesus. It's not my Father, give me this day my daily bread, forgive me my sins, lead me not into temptation, deliver me from evil. Although, yes, true, but instead Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, Our Father, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus has the whole community of believers in view whenever we pray, Our Father, our daily bread, our trespasses. As William Willimon and Stanley Hauerwas put it, there may be religions that come to you through quiet walks in the woods or by sitting quietly in the library with a book or rummaging around the recesses of your own psyche, but Christianity is not one of them. Christianity is inherently communal, a matter of life in the body, the church. Jesus did not call isolated individuals to follow him. He called a group of disciples. So what is Jesus saying when he teaches us to pray our Father? If Jesus himself only says my Father or the Father when he refers to God or your Father when he refers to the disciples and God, he is always showing us that he has this unique relationship with God that we don't have. But if God can become our Father, then it means that Jesus is passing on something of his own priceless relationship to God to us Not just me, not just you, but to us as a body. Jesus is God's only Son. But by God's grace, believers are adopted into God's family, are given the right to call God our Father. That's what it says in John chapter 1, verse 11 to 13. Jesus came to his own people, but his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born, not of blood, so not of our biology, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. So to be born again is to enter into a new kind of family, a new kind of life. Friends, all of this is to say that at the heart of the story of the Bible, the heart of Jesus' teachings, is God's desire to become our Father. He sent Jesus so that we could be adopted into God's family. And as a result, we can pray to him. We can speak to him as our heavenly father. This is salvation. The story of salvation is not simply one where God takes away some of the bad things we did called sins, but where he then also takes us into his family and makes us his children. The story of salvation is an adoption story. But of course, what this means is that unless you are adopted into the family of God, unless you are adopted by God so that he becomes your father, you are not saved. You are not in his kingdom. You do not have his love if God is not your father. 
This is why theology, how we think about God, is at the center of how we do everything else. We've got to clarify this because it is crucial. Jesus has been showing us throughout Matthew 6 that there are scores of people who pray, but that they aren't heard by God because they don't pray to God as their Father. And not just saying that they don't use the word Father, but they aren't praying from the heart. They aren't praying as an activity of deep personal relationship with the Father, but rather, he says they're praying all their other kinds of prayer. The only other kind of prayer is a religious performance. And he gives two examples found in just before the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. These are found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 8. In the first example that Jesus gives, he describes someone whose prayer is a visual performance. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have already received their reward. What was their reward? Well, to be seen by others. The issue Jesus is confronting is that the hypocrites love to pray in public so that so that they may be seen by others. It's not that praying in public is bad. It's that praying in public to be seen by others is not at the heart of true prayer. Through prayer, they are putting on a visual performance so that others around them think highly of them. They think other people might think, well, look, now he's a prayer warrior. She's a really spiritual person. Look at their piety. Look at his devotional practice, his eloquence. If only I could pray like him or like her, God would love me too if I was that diligent in my prayers. Jesus is confronting anyone who goes to prayer and worship and thinks that if they don't show how into it they are, they must not be a good Christian. Jesus says, ironically, that if you feel you must make a show of how spiritual or how Christian you are, if you have to show how devoted you are devotionally practicing all the prayer and reading of the Bible kind of things you are to others, you probably aren't a good Christian. At least, you certainly aren't concerned about your heart before God, but rather your reputation with others as evidenced by what you do. And friends, this enters the church. This isn't something outside the church. This is something in the church. All of us contend with this subtle sin of parading our righteousness before others. Think about your background for a moment and the ways that that subtle thought comes into your mind. For some of our charismatic friends, they feel, uh, or they're concerned, right? When others uh, they're worshiping with aren't raising their hands or dancing or shouting with joy, Or it's the fleeting thought in our conservative friends' minds when they are concerned that the others they are worshiping with are raising their hands and dancing and shouting with joy rather than being quiet and reserved. Look, the point that Jesus is getting at is that God looks at the heart. And if you ever confuse this with your outward posturing or presentation or performance, you're demonstrating that it's not God your Father you're focusing on, but how you look to others around you. Whether that's being expressive in prayer and worship or being reserved. For some of us, 
the right way to look in church is to be loud and expressive. And for others, the right way to look in church is to be reserved and quiet, but it's neither appearing expressive or reserved, loud or quiet, that should motivate our prayers or our worship. For if so, you've already received your reward, Jesus says. And what is that? The self-satisfaction that others find you to be a good Christian based on how you perform in your prayers and worship. And as John Stott says, how can we pretend to be praising God when in reality we are concerned that men will praise us for our prayers? Look, nothing destroys prayer like looking sideways out of the corner of our eye at human spectators to see if they are looking at us. Nothing helps prayer like looking to the Father and having a sense of his divine pleasure and presence. The essence of Christian prayer is to seek God the Father, not to be seen by others. That means that most of what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is not confronting bad people and telling them how to become good Christian people, but confronting good people and showing them how they aren't Christians at all. You could be a bad person who doesn't pray, a bad person who does pray, a good person who doesn't pray, or a good person who does pray, and whether you were good or bad, whether you prayed or not, you'd all actually be in the exact same position with God. This is the shocking thing. You're all in the same position because none of those people view God as their father. They're praying uh, because, or, or not praying, praying or not praying, simply because they want to be seen or they're hoping that God hears. But let me say it in a different way. If you think that praying occasionally is what makes you a Christian, or at least a good person, you may want to rethink that position. Praying isn't what makes you a Christian. Rather, it's Christians who pray. But not simply because we're supposed to pray, but because we know the Father, and we love Him. So we speak to Him. It's not a performance. It's a personal relationship. In the second example, in Matthew 6, verse 7, Jesus describes someone whose prayer is a verbal performance. So the other one was a visual performance, but this one's a verbal performance. He says, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. You can see that this section begins similarly to the first example. They both begin saying, When you pray. So the assumption is that you're praying. But this time, Jesus doesn't confront the hypocrites, but the pagans or the Gentiles. If he was confronting people who think they are Christians but aren't when he's speaking to the hypocrites, in the second example, he's confronting people who don't think that they are Christians, but they do think there is a God or a higher power or a universal life force who can help them. If hypocrites are those who appear spiritual, the pagan version of prayer here is one that acts superstitious. There is no reference to Gentiles praying for the praise of others. Instead, it says they think they'll be heard for their many words. So it's not a performance for other people, but a performance for God. The hypocrites want to look good, uh, look like good people to other people. And so they put on a visual performance. But the pagans want to sound good to God. And so they put on a verbal performance for him. If the temptation of the hypocrites is to put on a show so that they can hide their flaws, like hypocrites in the ancient world, that was the word for actors. They would use masks to represent different characters they played. So they were hiding their real face, their real selves, and they were playing a character. And that's what 
Jesus is saying about some people who are religious, who might even come to church or pray, is that they're actually using it as a mask to hide their flaws and appear good. The temptation, though, for the pagans, the other side, not hypocrites, but those who just believe in spirituality in general, is to spit powerful words so that they can remove their anxiety and improve their lives. We can hide from God in hypocrisy by not bringing our prideful, sinful hearts truly before Him, and instead we try to appear put together, but we can also mistrust God in our anxiety like the pagans did by not casting all our cares upon Him, but instead try to persuade Him, try to get Him or bribe Him to act for us. But Jesus says that if God is your Father, you don't have to persuade Him. He already knows what you need. And if he's adopted you, you already have the rights of being his child. Your prayers can be simple and direct, just like he gives the Lord's Prayer as an example of a way to pray. Because you are his child, because he loves you, you can just speak with him straightforwardly. Megan Hill is a wife and a mother, and she described this journey she took with her husband to Ethiopia back in 2012. And she says, In 2012, when my husband and I walked through the gates of an orphanage in Addis Ababa, the capital city of Ethiopia, we were immediately stampeded by 25 children. They grabbed at our backpacks, they jabbed exploring fingers into our pockets, they repeatedly demanded our attention with the only English words they knew. Mommy, 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 daddy, daddy, daddy. Those little ones knew the language of family and the gestures of asking, but 24 of the 25 children had no right to use them. And though we gave candy and balloons to every child, there was only one little boy whose cries to us of mommy and daddy were absolutely compelling, because this was the child with whom we had a relationship, having just appeared before a judge in a courtroom to secure his adoption, and this child alone could reach into our pockets and have every assurance that he'd be granted whatever treat he could find there. The children in the orphanage longing for parents could cry out all day and ask those potential parents for whatever they could think of, but they wouldn't ultimately get it until someone actually adopted them. And the adoption is always the work of the parent, not the child. You and I often treat our prayers, our interaction with God like a performance. We think we need to be good people, so we try to be. We think we need to get God's attention or demand that He hears us through our many words. But Jesus is telling us that the basis for relationship with God is not a visual performance and getting your act together. It's not appearing to be good. It's not a verbal performance of saying the right things or trying to convince God to give you what you want with your life. The basis for relationship is God's actions towards us not our actions towards Him. Adoption is always the work of the parent. We are already apart from Him, already orphans because of sin. We are separated from Him, and our only hope is that He will adopt us. Jesus came to give us the right to become the children of God, meaning He did the legal work. He did the justifying work. And apart from Him, we do not have that right. We do not have a parent-child relationship with God apart from Jesus, the ultimate child-parent relationship. Having worked on our behalf, we can pray to God all we want, but we pray only as sinners trying to get something from God, rather than saints on the other side of receiving a gift from God, His gracious adoption 
of us into his family. God is our Father in heaven. In heaven means he's over all things. We can only relate to him then on his terms. We can have a relationship with God, but it is not a relationship of equals. Just as any parent-child relationship is not a relationship of equals, right? Both parents and children have equal dignity as human beings, but they don't have equal authority, equal ability, or equal affection. The parents have the authority and the ability to shape the home and the family life, not the child. And the parent's affection for the child far outpaces the child's affection for the parents because the children are needy and often self-centered, while the parent provides for those needs and is selfless in caring for the child. So look, you, you cannot just come to God. You can only relate to God. You can only approach God on his terms. We are estranged from God because of sin. We don't want God as our father. We don't want authorities in our lives. We trust in our own abilities. We seek affection and love in whatever way we choose. And the Bible says that because of that, it is our chief problem that we we are orphans. We are scraping by, doing what we can, living life on our own terms, when what we need is a loving Father who will care, care for and provide for us. The Bible actually uses anti-relational words to describe us as sinners. It says we are enemies of God, strangers, aliens, separated people. As one author writes, To know what effect our sin has on our right to pray, on our right to call upon God, We must go to look at the cross. We must go to the cross. Here our condemned Savior cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there is no answer. Forsaken by God, cut off from relationship to the Father, Jesus prays on the cross as one cursed to bear our sin, and he was met with only silence. What does that mean about our prayers? It means that our prayers what do they deserve? Silence. There is no God. We don't have the right to ask. And yet God who rejected the prayer of Jesus, the wrath-bearing son, his only son on the cross, accepts our prayers now because of him, cleansed from sin, covered in Christ's righteousness, adopted by the Father to be sons just like Jesus. We who could never before presume to pray, to ask God for anything we had no right, are now welcomed, given the right to have a conversation with God. Do you see how all this theology works towards practice? the practice of praying. Look, how does all of this affect our praying? How does it affect our praying to know that God is our Father in heaven? You know, one of the greatest struggles for me was understanding that God is my Father. I grew up going to church. I believed in God, but I did not think of God as my Father. I understood that God was in heaven, but not our Father in heaven. I could say those words many times, but it wasn't a heart reality for me. He seemed distant and powerful, but not personal. You could ask God, maybe in prayer, for many things. Maybe he'd give them to you, maybe not. It was up to him. He was a God who, but he, but he wasn't a God who, who delighted in conversation, delighted to be close to his children like a good father. He was distant, a powerful deity whom you respected but didn't really know. And most of the time I figured he was probably shaking his head at me, wondering why I couldn't get my act together, why I wasn't a better person, why I wasn't more faithful. 
But everything changed for me in college. About halfway through my time at the university, I was ready to give up on Christianity. And looking around at my life and my peers, it was easy for me to see that people are sinful. We were all making terrible mistakes. We were hurting one another. I could believe even uh, that God might want to save us from our sins. It made sense to me. And I could see and even be amazed. I was amazed at the story of Jesus, that God would actually want to sacrifice for us But I was still ready to give up on Christianity, because even after I understood the sacrifice Jesus was making, it still seemed like after that, the call to us was just to try hard to be a good person. And yet, through some wild circumstances, some changes in my life, I found myself reading the Bible on my own for the first time, and one of the major outcomes of sitting in the words of the New Testament was this realization for me that God says, if you know Jesus, you have what Jesus has. If God was not a father, he could never give us the right to become his children, right? If he did not enjoy eternal fellowship with his own son, then how could he possibly have any intimate fellowship and closeness to share with us? If the son himself had never been close to the father, how could he bring us close? How could he bring himself close to us? But Jesus insisted that he and the Father, as I was reading through the New Testament, he, I see Jesus, he was insisting him and the Father are so close they, that they were perfectly united. He says, I and the Father are one. So Jesus could never talk about his identity without talking about his relationship to the Father. And I realized that I had been, like most Westerners, seeking to discover my identity through what I did, while Jesus was telling me the only lasting identity comes through what he did in bringing me to the Father. So that now I can't really think of my life as anything apart from a relationship with the Father because that's exactly how Jesus thinks and acts. And I spent a long time reflecting on Romans 8, 14 to 17. It says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, receiving all his promises. Despite my own personal struggles with my family relationships on earth, God was offering me an eternal family relationship in heaven with him. And whenever joy started to well up in my heart, because I I realized I had a heavenly father, Romans 8 was telling me it, it was the spirit of God who was joining with my spirit, making me one with God, filling me with the joy of seeing that God the Father cared for me. And it dramatically changed how I related to Him and to other people. I wanted to hear from God all of the time now. My prayers were no longer just about what I could get from God, but the joy of simply talking to someone who'd already given everything for me. As British theologian Michael Reeves says, knowing God as our Father not only wonderfully gladdens our view of Him, it gives us the deepest comfort and joy. Clearly, the salvation of this God is better even than just forgiveness, and it's certainly more secure. More than forgiveness, this God welcomes and embraces you as His child, never to send us away. For children do not get disowned for being naughty. He does not offer some kind of 
he loves me, he loves me not relationship where you and I have to keep trying to prove ourselves gaining God's favor by behaving perfectly. No, it says to all who received Christ, to all who believed in his name, God gave the right to become children of God. It's legal, it's official, it's secure. And so we have this great joy. This is the kind of relationship God has secured for us. The famous reformer, Martin Luther, knew very well how much the fatherhood of God changes the shape of salvation and really all of our thoughts about God. He was a Catholic monk, and he knew well that God is righteous and hates sin. But he didn't go any further than that in his original understanding of God. He, he didn't see why God hates sin and what his righteousness is really about. In his own words, Martin Luther said that the result of his understanding of God was that he did not love, yes, I even hated this righteous God who punished sinners, and secretly I was angry with God. Not knowing God as a kind and willing father, a God who brings us close. Luther found he could not love God, and his fellow monks and him found it much easier to pray to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and to other saints. This is why Catholics do this, he says, because the saints didn't seem that hard to love. They didn't punish sin. But everything began to change for Martin Luther when he began to see that God is fatherly. God is a God who shares everything, and that on the cross, he sent his son to gift us his righteousness, his glory, and his wisdom. So so looking back later in his life, Luther realized that before he hadn't been worshiping or relating to God at all. It's not enough, he said, to know God as a creator or the judge or just a powerful being who might be able to make a nice life for you if he wanted to. It's only when you know God as a loving father that you know God rightly. Luther said, God himself has revealed and disclosed the deepest profundity of his fatherly heart, his sheer inexpressible love. Through sending Jesus his son to bring us back to himself, to make us all God's sons, God revealed himself to be inexpressibly loving and supremely father. Fatherly. This gives us great assurance and joy in all things, and it wins our hearts to Him. Luther said that when we really see God for who He's revealed Himself to be, God, the God who comes to save orphan sinners, the God who comes to give us the legal right, perfect standing before God as children of God, we look into His fatherly heart and we see how boundlessly He loves us. And this warms our hearts setting them aglow with thankfulness. In salvation, God has offered us a salvation where his own son is forsaken so that sinners separated from God would not be forsaken, but instead could be made his beloved children. We find a God we can really and actually love, a God that we might just actually want to love, a God who has first loved us. Now our lives are marked by continual conversation, continual prayer, in which we are close with God, dependent on God, loyal to God as our loving Father, because He has made us His family. Our Father in heaven, we love you, and we thank you for making us your children. Friends, we'll be in touch again soon. We hope to continue to share the word of God with you, and we are praying for all of you. God bless you and keep you.